Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, I I like history, so I was looking at some history this week. I found in the year 1147, Pope Eugene reached Paris on a Friday, particular Friday, and Friday was the fast day for the Catholic Church at the time, and so to enable the people to properly celebrate his entry into the city, the Pope decreed that, just on his own, that Friday was really Thursday. He just on his own changed the day of the week on the calendar to accommodate his schedule and his convenience. And for me, it kind of serves as an example of how the evangelical church, if we're not careful, can look at the Lord's Supper. You know, when it's inconvenient, church leaders, members can just kind of blow it off, minimalize it, relegate it to just being any old day or some kind of a rote tradition that we have to observe every now and then. We just kind of grin and bear it. And some of us in this room, let's be honest, may have felt that way before. You know, Lord's table, no big deal. You know, we have a love feast, as Pastor George mentioned. We have a nice lunch fellowship afterwards. Not today, because we have our, our Christmas fellowship Saturday, but normally right after. And, uh, but the prayer time, getting quiet, getting still before God, taking the two elements, doesn't always come easy, does it? We're not used to doing that kind of thing. Well, I hope and pray that you're going to give the Lord's Supper a new appreciation, fresh look, perspective for what it's about and why it should be regarded as such a big deal for us because it's a big deal for God and what it signifies after hearing this. Because after all, for Jesus and the disciples, it was a massively big deal that starts in this text. This is the Last Supper where we're at. We get a window view here into the Last Supper. This is the last or final Passover meal between Jesus and the disciples, like we said last time. It's a transitional meal, right down to the very last detail. This Thursday evening, it's on the eve of Good Friday and the cross. And what it does is it serves like a bridge between the Old Covenant and the Hebrew High Holy Day of the Passover. That was the first and biggest of their feasts. And it comes into now the New Covenant and what's going to be known as the Lord's Supper or the partaking of the Lord's table or what some call communion. And it's here at this table in the upper room. Remember Jesus secured that last time, calling on the disciples to put it together, where the final Passover becomes the first Lord's Supper at the same time. And you know, the Lord's Supper, it's one of only two ordinances biblically that the church is to observe and celebrate, baptism being the other. For believers, and we're at the point of this meal in the evening. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels, by the way, although the Lord's teaching on the Holy Spirit is exclusively given in the Gospel of John. Remember, we talked about that last time. When they walked in, they got settled, and as they're walking in and through the room, Jesus puts a towel around his waist and washes the disciples' feet. He's showing the most loving bit of servant leadership that anyone could ever show. And they recline at the table. 
to take the Passover Seder, which, of course, is a memorial tribute to the Lord because he saved, he delivered Israel from the bondage and death in Egypt centuries before. There's the symbol of the spotless, perfect Passover lamb they were to consume. And then the blood of that lamb, remember, was a substitute, was a sacrifice. They would paint it, as it were, on the doorframe of their home so that the angel of death sent by God would pass over those, those homes, sparing their firstborn male children from that judgment, the tenth plague. So this was the meal that would then go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would take the rest of the week. The Jews would observe this every year without fail. And from everywhere, the nation of Israel would gather here, this mass pilgrimage. In fact, it's estimated, according to historians, they butchered 250,000 lamb on this particular occasion. And so if you take into account, it was about 10 people minimum per household. You're talking about two and a half, three million people are converging on the holy city at this time, which you can understand why the Romans were a little uptight, a little nervous about all these people here at this time of year. Now, the sequence of everything that happens here is a little imprecise in terms of what happens moment by moment. But we know at this time what the Lord has done. He's predicted, he's prophesied just now that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. The chief priests, the Sanhedrin are going to be involved. The traitor among the twelve, that's him. And as he dips his bread into the dish, just as Christ did, the Lord's basically telling him, take off. Do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. And Peter, remember, and the others, they're wondering, who's going to be this traitor? Because they didn't get the whole conversation. They're like, is it me? Is it me? Is it you? What about you? It can't be me. They're pointing fingers. And now Jesus now gets down to business. And he inaugurates this holy fellowship for his people, his church, by highlighting two parts of the Passover. That's going to symbolize the foundation of the first Lord's Supper. You're going to partake of them today. We want to talk about the bread and the body, and secondly, the cup and the blood. We're going to unpack each one of those. Let's look at this bread and the body in the text, verse 22. Jesus says, as they were eating, he took bread. After blessing it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. I should have brought up a piece of bread and, and a cup of juice up here to just kind of illustrate this, but the, the word blessing that you find there as he's breaking the flat bread here, matzah, it's an interesting one to take note of. It's the root word where we get the word eulogy from. You've ever been to a funeral or memorial service, and a eulogy is given, which is to praise or speak well of someone. And that word also is where we get the word Eucharist from. You've heard the early church Catholics used to describe the Lord's table that way, and that could be translated as thanksgiving. So what we have is Jesus is consecrating, he's setting aside this meal as a special meal by giving it a blessing of thanks. Now, let's get down to where the rubber hits the road. What does it mean when he's telling these disciples to take his body, to eat it, which is a Greek metaphor meant to describe devouring something, consuming something. This is the controversial or challenging part of this verse for some to deal with. 
First thing is, I'll tell you what it's not. Take it. It does not appear in the best manuscripts of the Bible. And it can be translated this way. Take this is my body. Is, is, can be translated further as represents my body. So it would be as if the Lord is saying, take what is representing my body. Right? It's not literally being the body of Christ. It's not what we're talking about. For instance, if I, I held up a picture of my wife, Maddie, she's not here today, but if, if I held up a picture of her on my phone and said, this is Mary, you, you wouldn't take that literally. Right? You would know it's a picture or an image of her that's representing her. It's not her in the flesh. Also, Jesus was physically present at that moment, right? So they couldn't eat this bread and devour him physically at the same time. And we're making, we're explaining this, fleshing this out a little bit, pun intended, because of the fact that this is so misrepresented, misunderstood, what's going on here. By the way, another reason we know Jesus is speaking metaphorically here as a figure of speech, the Jews were forbidden by God's law, by Moses' law, to practice cannibalism, duh, and they couldn't partake of blood. Yet in the early church age, I don't know if you know this, there were pagans that accused the Christians of being cannibals because they were hearing these scriptures being repeated that talked about Jesus saying, take, eat of my body and drink of my blood. They didn't get the fact that what we're talking about is symbolic language. So to take this literally would be to throw out all the rules of biblical interpretation, really any way you interpret any form of communication, right? Jesus is no more a piece of bread than he was the door of the sheep gate in John 10, or any more than he was the vine, right? The branches, John 15. We know those are figures of speech. But there are Christians, other denominations, and there are Catholics that believe in what's called transubstantiation. There'll be a quiz on that word later. Or consubstantiation. Con, a prefix meaning with. Transubstantiation is this. So you know why we don't do it that way. It's the view that the bread and wine are actually changed into Christ's body and blood every time it's taken. Consubstantiation essentially teaches that Jesus is with, con, in and under the bread and the wine. He's not literally the bread and the wine, but it's close. So think about it like a sponge that's holding water. The water's not the sponge, but it's under, in, and going through the sponge. Okay? In fact, Rome takes that even a step further. They believe the priest actually pulls down Christ from heaven to be sacrificed in the bread each day they observe the Eucharist in their Mass. They're actually re-crucifying Jesus, as it were, daily. By virtue of that, they teach sanctifying grace is coming through that process, through the bread and the wine, to one that takes it. That's not biblical. That's not true. So what does the Lord mean then when he says, take my body and eat it. Luke offers a clue in his account. He says, this is my body given for you. So it is in essence a gift, like a grace gift. And we're going to flesh it out a little bit more. Pardon the expression. John, let's go to John's gospel. Go to John chapter 6 with me, if you would, if your Bibles are open. 
John 6, verse 53, this is after the feeding of the thousands. All the people just got this massive miracle feeling, feeding, and they're excited about all this food, the bread they got, and they want more. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Oh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, if you take that literally and out of context, you're going to think you have to literally eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood, right? To be saved. But John 3 tells us you gain eternal life by what? Faith. Believing in Jesus. So this analogy continues over the next few verses if you're still in John 6. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I feel you. Definitely. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? I think they did. But then the clincher is in the explanation that follows that. Verse 63, it is the Spirit, listen, it is the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who was about to betray him. So you get the explanation? Okay, the flesh has no benefit. It gives no life. So consuming his flesh wouldn't do that. He's talking about a figure of speech here. And by the way, to show you, when you're studying the Bible, you're reading the Bible, context is king. What comes before the verse? What comes after? How does it fit in the chapter? How does it fit in that gospel in all of the Bible? Okay? It's huge in interpreting Scripture. And you can see where the analogy here begins after the feeding of the thousands. Okay? Because these people were blown away by all this bread he came up with and this food. They love bread even more than I do. Right, Joe? And, uh, you know, we're talking about basic sustenance it was for the Jew. If you had bread, you had life. So Jesus said this, go up a little further, John 6, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they figure, oh, okay, they got to work for this, right? That's what has to be. And then Jesus caps it off in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, here's one of his great I am statements. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So it's coming to him, following him, believing in him. There's no literal talk there of anybody eating his body. You get that? It's come to me, take me in by faith. And if you have that, you're getting the sustenance, the bread of life, which is eternal life. You see how that goes? So this is where the disciples, okay, would hear what Jesus is doing at the Passover, breaking bread, when he says, take my body and eat. They get it. Take me in by faith. I'm about to give my body, he's saying, as a ransom for you and I when you believe. So that's why we take here at CCC the Lord's table as a memorial. Because after all, Paul quoted the Lord in 1 Corinthians. He said this, do this 
in remembrance of me. Remember me. That's a memorial. That's how it's done. And that's the same way the Passover was observed in the Old Covenant. And you know what's fascinating here? By rabbinic decree, the matzah bread, you'll see this when you go back and take it shortly, uh, had to be striped, pierced, and burned in such a way as to appear bruised. And doesn't that sound like the language of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Here's something else to consider about how God built the Lord's Supper, brought it into the symbolism from the Passover. The matzah of the, of the bread, the matzah, that's the bread of the meal, was placed in a bag, ikad, and it means one in Hebrew. But the bag had three chambers or parts to it. And the piece of bread in the first chamber was never touched, never used, was never seen. The second matzah is the bag broken in half at the beginning of the Seder. And then half the broken matzah is placed back in the ikad, and the other half, afikomen, they called it, is placed in a linen cloth. So the meaning of all the Seder's ritual of the matzahs is really picturing what? The New Testament and the Trinity. Three in one. Because the first matzah that remained in the bag throughout the Seder represented the father, Ahav. That's the one, the part no one sees, right? The father can't be seen, he's spirit. The third represents the Ruach, HaKodesh. That's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And the second matzah, the broken one that you're going to have today, Haben, which is the son. And the reason the middle matzah is broken, I think you can figure it out, is to picture the broken body of Christ to save sinners. Isn't that cool? I don't, I don't know. You may think of that as trivial. I think that's pretty interesting. Honey, did you like that? That was, I, I thought you'd like that. Okay. So that's the bread and body we're talking about. Here's my second point. The cup and the blood. That's the end of the passage. Go back to Mark 14, verse 23. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, notice something. They drank of the same cup. And the cups they shared were four of them during the Passover meal. And that represented the four promises made by God to the Jews in Exodus. Now, why aren't we drinking wine here today? Well, their wine consisted of fermented grape juice, which is wine, but they likely mixed it with water, as they often did, that would reduce the amount of alcohol in it, that would lessen the chance of drunkenness, which God obviously forbid. And today, as always here, you're going to have grape juice. It's the fruit of the vine, not fermented, of course, because it merely serves as a symbol of the shed blood of Christ on the cross, which is going to happen here about 24 hours later. And the text may be talking about when Jesus is saying, take the cup, could be the third cup at that point, the fourth. We don't know for sure. But the third cup of blessing, bruka, is known as the cup of grace or redemption. So I think it's that one. Because in Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses and he told the people in bondage, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery and then I will redeem you, buy you back with an outstretched arm. And Paul probably had that in mind in 1 Corinthians. When he said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So the connection is the blood of Christ. 
His death is what redeems us as the blood did for the Jews at the Passover. And the fourth and final cup is what they call the praise of consummation. And that being when the kingdom is consummated. The kingdom on earth is fully in all its glory revealed. And that was called a Hallel. And Hallel in Hebrew, we have those psalms back there. They're songs of praise. So that cup was to point to the hope of the messianic kingdom to come, as Exodus 6-7 talks about. And I, I'm pretty sure the fourth cup is to come because the end of the passage in verse 25, Jesus says he's not going to drink it again with his disciples until the new kingdom comes. Speaking of the cup, verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is big. The covenant, according to another translation you might have, will say new covenant. Or it may even say New Testament. Similar idea. What is a covenant? Because when it says it's new, it means, yes, it could be new in time, but it also can mean new as in a kind of. What is a covenant? It's like a testament. It's like a last will testament. It's a, it's a legal arrangement of some sort. And it's an agreement, like a contract between parties, okay? In the biblical case, it's unilateral, meaning one party, God, sets the terms of it, how it's going to go down. Like, you do this, and then this happens. And if you do this, I do this. That was the idea, Old Covenant, Old Testament, now New Covenant, New Testament. And there are several covenants from the Bible. Anyone want to shout out one of the covenants are? What is it, Diego? Obey what? Obey your parents? Yeah, that better be a covenant. I'm not sure it's, it's, if it's officially technically a covenant, but one of them would be the Noahic covenant. Sounds like Noah, right? Well, that's the covenant of promise. He'd never flood the earth again. Another one would be the Abrahamic covenant. You've heard of that. And even one more contextual here would be the Davidic covenant, David there would be another king, a Messiah, son of God, to come to rule and reign. Those are all covenants. Okay. Now, the final Passover and the first Lord's Supper is symbolizing the inauguration. Here it is, the birth of the new covenant that the old covenant prophets had predicted was going to come. The idea was... This covenant is a better way of how God is going to redeem his people. It's the new, direct, personal way that God is going to save and forgive sinners by faith in the Messiah and Son of God. He's going to give them new life. I want you to see this or mark it, Jeremiah 31. It's a text we often kind of paraphrase and quote around here. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is during the Babylonian captivity. And he writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with my fathers on the day, their fathers, when I took them out of their, their by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Right? Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. The law is moving off of stone and paper now. There's a natural moral law on the heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me. He says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So that's the what of the new covenant. And again, a little more of the how. Ezekiel 36. It's like a parallel to Jeremiah. Ezekiel says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That's a good analogy. Stone is an inanimate object. It doesn't breathe. It has no life. So that's your life before you're saved. You have a heart of stone. It's like dead. He's going to remove that, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, breathing. It's alive. And he says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. You see that? So this is really a picture. It's a symbolic video, if you will, of what it means to have death and life in Christ. Because when you came to Christ, your old self should have died. Your heart of stone was turned into a heart of flesh or given new life by God. It's what's called the new birth. That's why Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. That's what it has to happen. That's what has to happen to you if it hasn't already. It's a transformation that God does in the heart. It's heart surgery. And that heart surgery enables you to repent and believe. If there's one of you in this room and you're having a hard time believing, trusting in Jesus and following Jesus, you still may have a heart of stone. You need to repent, believe. And if you did, it's because he just changed it into a heart of flesh. He gave you new life. And just so, again, as the, you are reminded, the blood of a sacrificial animal sealed the covenant deal with God. He made that with them in Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is doing the same in the new covenant with his new people, the church at the cross. And the death of Christ is the one and only sacrifice necessary to save. Hebrews 9 and 10 affirms that. It quotes Jeremiah. It quotes Ezekiel to prove, to affirm we're in the new covenant age. You don't have to, we don't have to bring animals. We don't have to sacrifice anything anymore in this church age. You don't need to go to a mass where you got to take this element in that every week. Jesus has already died, buried, and resurrected. Amen? All right. So the Lord's careful. Now, we're going to get theologically deep for a second. He's careful to say the sacrifice doesn't apply to everybody. It applies to many people. That literally means a great number of people. The Lord's atonement or sacrifice for sin, that's the payment for the penalty of your sin. He pays it to God, not on behalf of everyone in the entire world. A number of people think that's so because they think about he died for the whole sins of the world, for the sins of all the world. Not really. It applied only to many, as he said, meaning many kinds of people, as well as in number. It's a big number. But he's speaking to the elect. He's speaking to the church. All that would ever believe in Christ. And some reformers, about five centuries ago, they properly corrected this idea of this atonement, of universal atonement, salvation, in response to false teaching. 
What they did was they called it, they talked about it as limited atonement. That's not a good phrase. A better phrase is to say Jesus' atonement was particular. It was definite because it didn't lack in anything. But it was, what he did at the cross only applies to believers, those that come to Christ by repentance and faith. And think about it. It makes perfect sense because when you realize that an atonement for sins does what it sets out to do, it forgives sins by the shedding of blood, Leviticus, it has to be that way. I mean, in Matthew's account, the Lord said his blood was poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So his blood forgave sins. So his cross couldn't atone for the sins of everybody in the world because if that was the case, everybody would be saved. And we know that's obviously not the case. That means he would have died for Judas. He didn't die for Judas. Judas isn't hell. The blood didn't atone for him. The blood wasn't shed for him. It's only shed for those that will believe. This is a theological reality. And it's in the scriptures, because if you go back, we had a memory verse a couple of months ago when we were in Mark 10, and the Lord said it there first. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Not all, many. Let's go to verse 25 and we're done. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So that's a, that's a prophetic promise of a future celebration. Okay? He's saying he's not going to drink that fourth cup of promise, consummation, until like the way Luke quoted the Lord, until the kingdom of God comes. That's a bit more direct, talking about the second coming and the millennial kingdom on earth that follows the second coming. It's also a preview of the end of the age, by the way, too. Revelation 19, what does it sound like? It sounds like the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's for the entire church. So, how often do we partake of the Lord's Supper? How often should we? The scripture doesn't give us a command or a mandate on that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's however often you take of it. It's open-ended. Some churches take it weekly, some as little as quarterly or annually. I will say this, annually, um, there are churches that take it annually because they're tying it into the Passover, which was a once-a-year feast. That may be a little, little too tight, a little bit of a stretch there, but we have freedom there. Now, in actuality, if you read the book of Acts, Acts 2, and you read 1 Corinthians 11, it looks like, in the historical context, their gathering and meal, folks, listen to this, was so important, they took it daily. And they made it like a day-long meal, or several hours anyway, which is where we get the idea, the principle of the love feast, the luncheon that we do here after the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month. And again, the frequency, though, I want to tell you, it's not the primary issue. primary issue is the heart condition, why we do it, and not to get extreme about it. Like in the medieval period of history, the Christians could be burned at the stake, folks, executed by the church, listen to this, for just being rebaptized as a believer when a person came to real saving faith. In fact, there was a queen, Bloody Mary. You ever heard of those? Ever heard of that? 
Bloody Mary was her name. She earned that name because she burned 300 Protestant reformers at the stake, most of them well-known church pastors, and she burned them over the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You want to know what cost them their lives? We've talked about it. Their view about the bread and the body and the cup and the blood. Did the people believe, this was the issue, did the people believe or did they not believe that the real body and blood of Jesus was present on the altar as soon as the words were proclaimed by the priest? If you didn't believe that you were eating the actual body of Jesus, you could be burned at the stake. That was the simple question. If they didn't believe and they didn't admit that, that's what happened to them, right? Back, back then, any attack on the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine was like an attack on the crown. And there was no more serious attack than rejecting the Catholic Mass in any way, shape, or form. Now, the Lord's Table, again, was so massively important, you can see from that, once upon a time, as a doctrine, as an event, that they thought it was worth dying for. And some thought worth killing in church history. Now, thankfully, it's not the case today. We're not dying over the Lord's Supper here. But I would argue we don't always take it maybe as seriously as we should. I think we want to avoid the extremes, taking it too lightly and taking it too extreme the other way, too heavy. We don't want to be too casual, and we don't want to take it so often that it becomes this routine because it's about the heart, people. So before we close, we want to mention communion real quick. The Lord's table is often referred to that. That's the fellowship part of the supper. That's why we're in this room taking it together. It's a big part that's often overlooked. Because 1 Corinthians 10, we participate, it says, with each other and with the Lord. That text reads as follows, 1 Corinthians 10, in the middle of verse 16. Paul wrote, I do not belong because I'm not an I. Oh, wait a second, wrong chapter. Okay, here we go. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Participation. That word is that Greek familiar word you've heard before. Some churches use it as a name, koinonia. Koinonia means fellowship, but it's a very close, intimate fellowship of community because of what you have in common. And the most greatest thing we have in common is our Lord and Savior, whom we love, because He loved us first, Jesus Christ, right? So, we don't want to go to war over the Lord's Supper. We don't want to break fellowship over it. And we don't want to ignore it. We don't ever want to come to it casually, like it's no big deal. Because it was a big deal for God, so it's got to be for us. Most Lord's Supper Sundays, again, we have that love feast fellowship to spend additional time together, because we're doing life together there. Okay, that's intentional. We're sharing the table like Jesus and the apostles and his disciples did at this first communion or Lord's Supper. So I just want to let you know, as you get ready to go to the table here in a moment, the Lord's here. He's present. His Holy Spirit is indwelling you. He's in you if you are in Christ. So there's communion there. And think about where you're at with him right now. 1 Peter 1 tells us we were ransomed or paid for from that, from that Passover lamb's blood when we were headed to hell. 
right? First Peter tells us, by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus is your Passover lamb. That's how you can connect the Passover to Lord's Supper for yourself today. So we want to get real now. Tell us, Bernie, what, what does Scripture tell us to do? Well, as we take to the table, we're going to pray. We're going to reflect where we are, do business with the Lord. We want to do what Paul told us to do in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are even in the faith. Test yourself that Christ is in you. Because we didn't even touch on the whole chapter dealing with the detail of taking the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, that warns, warns people that they can experience consequences if they take the Lord's table not being a believer in Christ or in unrepentant sin, particularly with someone in the house of God. So get right with the Lord. Pray right now before you take the table. Pastor George will come up now and, and lead us in taking the elements. Uh. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the giving tab at the top of the homepage.